All right, welcome to another episode of the Geopolitical Pivot. My name is Samaj Bedal, your host, and I'm here with a good friend of mine, Bob Nee. Um, Bob, I hope that you're you're doing well today with the you know, pandemic and all this crazy stuff's going on. Um, but usually what I like to do when I bring people on to the Geopolitical Pivot, um, I take a few minutes, a lot it to you to kind of talk about your background, your academic background, um, professional background, and what you aspire um, to achieve in your early career, mid mid career, post mid whatever you want to tell us, um, the floor sure. is yours. Well, Samash, thank you very much for having me on. Uh, so right now, I work for a uh, I work in politics, um, but my background is I was a I did national security policy for a while. Uh, with I studied at the Institute of World Politics. My master's degree got is from there. Um, my bachelor's degree is at Seton Hall University. I, I majored in political science, minored in Middle Eastern studies. Um, and my areas of expertise in terms of academic areas have always been, um, most of them, a lot of it's been the Middle East. I've spent a lot of time studying Latin America, but really my, my home court is Northern Ireland. Um, that was a conflict because of the fact that my family are from a very, Catholic part of Philadelphia, uh, that is a conflict that I grew up very close to. I uh, grew up listening to a lot of old Irish music about the Irish and the British and history there. And then as I sort of progressed in my academic and um, policy analysis career, as an, even as in like in what I do sort of on the side, I, I work for this, or not work for it, but I contribute to this group called StrikeSource um, that is a open source intelligence analysis platform and whenever they have something for Northern Ireland, they kind of, they, they usually, I'm usually their point man on that. Um, and I studied at Oxford under, at IWP. Uh, this was my issue, studied British counterterrorism strategy. One of my seminal papers at IWP was that, uh, comparing counterterrorism strategy in Afghanistan to counterterrorism strategy in Northern Ireland. Um, I've done in-depth analysis of IRA and Ulster paramilitary intelligence services, um, different methods of attacks and all of that type of stuff. And the political situation over there is just, it's constantly evolving and it's something that I grew up very close to because of my family and, and what have you. So that's sort of my background and, you know, honestly, I'll never, I'll never not love it. Um, I'll never not be fascinated what what originally drew me towards northern ireland was i was always i was constantly i just grew up listening to a lot of the music like i said i grew up sort of imbibed in irish american culture which is very different than irish culture uh but you know i have family over there i had cousins I, we always had they jokingly refer to the county that my mom is from delaware county in pennsylvania or as you as you call it, Delco. Uh, <laughs> they uh, they jokingly call Delco the thirty third county because mm. there are thirty two counties in Ireland and they operate like states. And there's so <laughs> many Irish people where my mom's from that it's the thirty third county. Um, so that was what was what was really it. But um, what continued to draw me back, honestly, even though I, I, as an adult, as I dove into it more in a policy analysis career, was that I just I, I really fell in love with the amazing people from Northern Ireland. Mm. You know, I remember they, they have, it's difficult sometimes in our 
world as conflict researchers and conflict analysts because we work so fervently on fields that people don't like to talk about, Mm -hmm. whether it was PTSD or just because of the fact that they don't want to do it. I mean, how many times have you talked to Middle Easterners or, or any other people from Latin America, anywhere else, and they, because of the trauma or because of what, because of their own personal experiences, they don't want to talk about the issues mm-hmm. that they're facing. And it makes it tough. I, it's completely understandable, mm-hmm. but it makes it very, very tough to understand from an outsider's perspective, from an analyst's perspective, to, to analyze situations and figure out how to help solve them. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I guess it must be a cultural thing, the Northern Irish are just different. Their perspective on it is that, I mean, Northern Ireland has one of the highest rates of PTSD wow. for the citizens of anywhere in the world Wow! in terms of just average citizens who grew up and have post-traumatic stress disorder because mm-hmm. they literally will, to this day, they will cross the street mm-hmm. if they see an empty parked car, even in America, even anywhere, because that that's just, they're taught that, when they were kids, that was like, oh my God, there's a bomb in that car. Mm-hmm. But like, that's their mentality. And their perspective on the conflict has always been, let's educate the world. Mm-hmm. Let's try to educate the world about it so that no other little kids have to go through what we went through when we were little kids. Mm-hmm. I was at a pub in Oxford. One of my greatest experiences was at um, C.S. Lewis's favorite bar. It's called the Eagle and Child. It's in St. George Street right there in downtown. Did you do the IWP program, Mox? I didn't. Um, I didn't do the, uh, the the program. However, the more you talk about it, it makes me want to do it once I'm able to do it with this whole vex- this whole. You should. Vex- it's, it's, it's fantastic. Okay. And Oxford's a great town. Um, mm-hmm. But there's this pub called the Eagle and Child. And irony of all ironies, it's right next to a British, recru- to a British Army recruiting station. Mm-hmm. It's the bus stop in downtown Oxford. <laughs> And so I'm in Eagle and Chop, which is kind of funny because C.S. Lewis was an Irish nationalist. Mm-hmm. And so I'm in Eagle and Child. I'm having a drink. And the thing about the Northern Irish accent is that it's very distinct. Mm-hmm. It has a very sort of specific sound to it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like a, Northern, a lot of typical Irish accents or, or even like a British accent or something. You know, it's very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like... It's almost like an American accent when you go overseas because it carries, it's so loud, mm-hmm. you know, you can just notice it automatically right. when you're in a bar or something like that. And so whenever I hear it, I always try to be respectful, but I always try to talk to them and, and get their side of the story. And if they don't want to talk, they don't want to talk. I completely understand that. I'm not going to harass them anything. Mm-hmm. So I see these four people come in and they're sitting in the front room at Eagle and Child having a couple drinks, two, two married couples. And they're, you know, carrying on. I can hear the accent. And I'm like, oh, wow. And so I had, I flag them down and I said, hey, you know, I hope you don't, I hope you don't mind me saying this. I love your guys' accent. I know you're from Northern Ireland. I, I get that. I'm here studying the peace process because mm-hmm. that's one of the ways that you can condense it down for them to understand. And they said, listen, the guy grabbed me by the shoulder. He said, my wife and I are Catholic. Our two best friends here in Oxford are Protestants. We grew up just down the road from each other. Do you want to study the peace process? Because mm-hmm. right now you're looking at the peace process. And like, that's just the level of warmth that they have that they're, they're automatically, they were like, come on, sit down. We'll talk about it. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they were just, 
the incredible, I would be remiss if I didn't point out how incredible the people there were right. and how great they've treated me as a complete outsider to their world. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's an interesting um, input. You talked about the, the PTSD um, rate in, in Northern Ireland. Let's get more into that. What's causing, uh, for those who may not know, um, what's causing this, uh, you know, the PTSD, the, the peace process? So let's kind of delve more into that. What is the peace process essentially attempting to reconcile essentially uh, this conflict right so this is a this conflict I mean this this history goes about 800 years back mm -hmm. but the basic history of it is that ever since the British government and the Normans and what have you have set foot in Ireland they've faced indigenous resistance from the Irish people mm -hmm. and that came to a head in it started in 1798, mm -hmm. but ultimately there were various failed uprisings and rebellions, whether it was the Young Irelanders Rebellion, the Society of United Irishmen in 1798, um, which was actually led by Protestants rebelling against their fellow Protestants because of the objective, the, they objected to how the Catholics were being treated, which was really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but in 1916, this group called the Irish Republican Army was formed. And so they were formed out of the ashes of what was called the Irish Citizen Army, which was kind of like a National Guard type thing that was formed by, it was a paramilitary unit of nationalist political parties. And so they occupied various government buildings in Ireland, specifically, very famously, they occupied the, the post office in downtown Dublin. And this was a, an event called the Easter Rising, the Easter Rising. The, and the brutality of it led to the execution of, and the brutality, not the brutality of it, but the brutality of the, the brutality of the British response mm -hmm. led to the, um, led to the Irish revolution that later occurred in 1918 to 1922. Mm -hmm. And so as a result of that, in the, in the 1918 to the 1920s, uh, it's kind of the dates are a little in flux towards the end. Because, um, you know, you have the, when did they lay down arms? When did the peace deal get signed? Mm -hmm. And the essential deal that they signed basically was they said, okay, well, we've got 32 counties in Ireland. 26 of them can go free. Twenty-six of them can go free. The problem is Belfast, which is the biggest city in Northern Ireland, was the city that the Royal Navy built basically all of its ships in, mm -hmm. and they didn't have the industrial support because to build it anywhere else in in Britain, the the company that was in charge of the shipping called the Harland and Wolf Shipping Industry didn't have the. They had some headquarters in Scotland, but they didn't have enough of a base to build anything else out there. Mm -hmm. Belfast Harbor is where they built pretty much the entire Royal Navy that fought World War II. It's where they built the Titanic. It was a huge, huge, huge deal. And the fear that Churchill, who was the head of the Secretary of Defense equivalent of the UK, the Ministry of Defense at the time, had was that the Irish nationalists would basically rip up any deal that they signed 
And so they needed the county, county Antrim, where Belfast is, and then the five counties surrounding Antrim to provide for enough of a buffer zone so that if the Irish nationalists decided to rip the deal up, they could then flood in and move troops in from Scotland and save Belfast Harbor. So half of the IRA agrees to this deal. Mm. And they say, okay, um, we are basically going to become, we're going to take this deal. It's the best deal we're ever going to get. Um, the other half doesn't. And it's why I actually have a cool, I have a cool um, piece of memorabilia I can show you in a second here to tie this all in. Um, there was something called the parting of the ways mm. where essentially what happened was they took this, the IRA split mm. and half of it became the legitimate army of the government of Ireland that to this day is deployed in Syria and uh, Lebanon and all of these other places and would be the army that if, if there was a war today and Ireland went to war, that would be the army that would go. Mm. Um, the other half became what we now know as the Irish Republican, what we what we call the Irish Republican Army. They kept that mantra. And as a matter of fact, if you link, I have a pair of Irish Army cufflinks. I should have gotten oh, wow. these out. That. Bringing up cufflinks. Oh, this ought to be a fancy affair. That's interesting. I didn't know um, that when the IRA split, the one half of it went towards becoming the, as you said, the official military army of the Irish Republic. That's interesting. Well, it was the, it was, it was a dispute over who had the ability to govern the Irish Republic Okay. because they had, they formed their own Congress, essentially kind of like how the colonists did. They mm -hmm. formed the continental Congress and the Congress. And that was what governed the American sides of the colonies during the revolution. Mm -hmm. And then once that was, that was the legitimate government. So they had the same thing in Ireland. They had a group called Doyle Aaron, which is like the Doyle Aaron is the is the again. It depends on your county and how they all pronounce certain words in the language. Mm -hmm. But um, Doyle Aaron was the was like the Irish Congress essentially, and because they signed an illegitimate peace deal, half of the Irish army said we're not going to recognize you and became the IRA. Gotcha. And that's why if you look at this. Mm -hmm. it, it very closely, it says in, in Irish, the phrase is Ogli Naherin, mm -hmm. which stands for the Army of Ireland. The IRA will still refer to itself as Ogli Naherin sometimes. There's, there's a, they in, and they will, there's a, Oglaf, it, it technically means volunteers. Mm -hmm. So it's volunteers of Ireland. This is what you get when your country is led by, your revolution is led by poets. You get very beautiful simon. <laughs> syllogies and, and right. all of that type of stuff and analogies of, of how things go. Mm -hmm. So like to this day, when an IRA man is killed, the conventional way that they bury them is they'll see at the funeral, they'll have Oglach so-and-so, which is the individual volunteer so-and-so mm -hmm. in English. Like there was a IRA man that was murdered a few years ago in Dublin. Very famously, his name was Alan Ryan. Volunteer Alan Ryan, rest in peace, mm -hmm. all that type of stuff. Um, it all dates back, they all go back to the same sort of lineage. Um, there was a civil war that broke out, and that was put down pretty quickly by the Irish government. Mm -hmm. um, but the IRA has continued in exile ever since. 
and they have basically focused their campaign on driving the British out of Ireland. Right. Um, and that's pretty obvious. So it all kind of went moot. There was a brief border period skirmish in the fifties. Mm-hmm. Uh, the border campaign is what it was called or a couple of people killed, but it really didn't amount to, it really kind of was a little bit of a flash in the pan, frankly. Mm-hmm. But as Northern Ireland civil rights issues started to undertake place in the sixties, which looked a lot like our civil rights mm-hmm. issues where, you know, you couldn't hold certain, they forbade Catholics from holding certain jobs. They forbade Catholics from holding certain housing. There were, there was, I think there was one point in the, in the sixties where Northern Ireland's unemployment rate was 6% and the Catholic unemployment rate was 30%. Oof. So it was just like, you could see like the, like the disconnect and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then whenever they would protest, they would be met with violence. A lot of the times the Protestant police forces would, they would actually do what we later found out the sons of Iraq and those other groups in Iraq were loosely modeling themselves after like the Ba'ath regime mm-hmm. where they would at daytime, they would be police officers and then they would at nighttime become Protestant paramilitaries right. that would burn out people's houses, um, burn people out of their homes using intelligence and information that they had gathered from the police service and the military too. Some of them joined the British army and mm-hmm. they would steal information from that. So once that happened, you saw a major uptick in funding and operations in the, in the sixties and in the late sixties and early seventies, um, that by the late eighties. And again, I'm, I'm distilling a lot of this that led to a full scale urban guerrilla war, Mm -hmm. um, where people literally couldn't even afford to, like, they were afraid to go shopping essentially. Like I said, um, because they didn't know, you didn't know if you were going out there, you didn't know if your grocer was going to be somebody that wasn't, that wasn't, that had said something wrong about the IRA or the Ulster volunteers or something like that. And then there was going to be a, a bomb parked out front of the grocery store. Mm-hmm. They probably, IRA in particular probably wouldn't have targeted a grocery store cause they were more strategic than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they had different attack methodologies, different groups, but mm-hmm. So the PTSD was just because of the fact that you had, when the IRA was coming in and they, you had all of these types of groups that were, that were propping up. Um, the reason that they were actually called the provisional IRA for a period was because they split off the IRA. They, they, there's all sorts of schisms and splits within the organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, like I just described the one, the major right. one at the parting of ways. But then after that, you start to see all these other little branches fall out. Um, in 1968, the provisional, the half of the IRA defects from itself again um, because of the fact that the army council in Dublin was not providing military aims. They were, they were the only group that was the civil rights organization in Ireland was trying to get protection from the police violence. And as a result, they were paying IRA contractors essentially as contractors to come and do it. But the Northern command staff wasn't receiving the funding and provisions necessary from the people from Dublin to do it because they, the Dubliners were frankly too lazy and too left wing to be rational with the people in Northern Ireland who were just saying, listen, you're, you're basically communists. um, And we can't come out and promote part of the reason why they were dragging their feet was because they were not wanting the 
the students, even though they were sort of left-wing leaning students, were too right-wing for the IRA in Dublin. And so those guys in the North split off, and that's why it was called the Provisional IRA, because they were the ones that were concentrated on getting provisions to the people that were there on the ground. Mm -hmm. The official IRA was the old school guys that could trace themselves back to the border campaign. Um, But all of these, and and places like Philadelphia became hotbeds for resources. Um, In Margaret Thatcher actually had to beg Ronald Reagan to pass federal laws um, to help target IRA fundraising schemes. I don't think Reagan ever passed laws, but he did choke them out pretty effectively. Um, But so you had all of these munitions, all these money, all these resources. You had Gaddafi was giving them arms. You had people getting Semtex from, oh yeah, absolutely. Um, You had people getting Semtex from Syria and and Palestine. Um, IRA snipers have been arrested in Palestine and Colombia and all of these other places like that. Um, You had all of these, all of these old school people throwing all these resources in. Um, There are even allegations that we we think that we may have found in the 2000s as the decommissioning process was occurring, we may have found weapons from the Chinese civil wars. Um, so there, the there are allegations that the KGB was involved in right. IRA intelligence operations. It's, it's a, <coughs> so that was, you know, bringing up Gaddafi and Palestine and so on and so forth. These, sure. Was this a? I can I can understand as far like the KGB want to do it to, in order to undermine the British. I I can no. I can understand that. Well, why Gaddafi? Why you know Palestinians or is it just for money and? So Gaddafi and the Palestinians were for were for different reasons. One, mm-hmm. Gaddafi openly wanted to stick the thumb in the eye of the British. Gotcha. That was that was his reason. It was the same thing as, um, and. The IRA were much better at intelligence than Gaddafi was. I mean, mm-hmm. they would run global networks with no problem. They were they were some of the best intelligence officers that, frankly, ever lived. They modeled their military organization off of the British Army. So, like, people think that they're these ragtag little terrorists or something like that. The IRA had a JAG Corps. Oh, I mean, they, <laughs> they had judge advocates. Let's wow. be, like they were they were they were very very in depth and organized and layered they had a court martial process they had intelligence they had counterintelligence they had a whole whole nine yards so all of the stuff that was going on with regards to libya they were ready to go into they were the ones that were on the ground in libya collecting information and, and getting getting on Gaddafi's good side Gaddafi was not but i mean you know Gaddafi bit the bait yeah. the palestinians are a little bit of a different issue the palestinians the ira have always seen them as being very good for their own propaganda. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also see themselves as being, it's, it's a win-win relationship. I mean, you can, you know, Palestine is always an issue that's going to be in the news, the Israel-Palestine conflict. And it's a good buoy to tie yourself towards if you're a group that has similar ambitions to Palestine. Because if you think about it, they're very similar situations mm-hmm. where, you know, a let, like this is again from the IRA perspective, they would say that, you know, well, we're, citizens of a foreign country, soldiers of a foreign country, because they can trace their lineage back to the original Irish army mm-hmm. <coughs> that are, you know, on occupied British territory and all that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and they 
you know, while our brothers in Palestine understand what that's like, because they're occupied by the Israelis too. And, you know, that, that's their, that's their angle on it. Gotcha. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Fascinating. You no, know, they also have, they also have flirted around with the FLQ, I think in Quebec, there have been a bunch of other stuff like that. A lot of these dissident movements, they, they, the IRA are pretty savvy about media, the, mm-hmm. the Republican movement are. So they try to sort of glom on to these types of movements. Like I said, you know, they've been involved in, um, they, weirdly enough, they don't back the Kurds or the Hong Kongers because mm-hmm. again, they're left wingers. They don't want to upset that. Right. Um, actually, I'm sorry, not the Kurds. They, they have been friendly with the PKK. They've been mm-hmm. friendly with the FARC in Colombia. They actually sent three of their bomb making tutorial teachers to Colombia mm. in the two thousands. One of the one of the provision one the official IRA sent mm. them there. The, so that was a problem. So then my question then <laughs> leads to um, if so we have all of this history, as you say, it's going back over the past eight hundred years, really. Sure. Um and we talked about the peace process. We talked about um, the potential, you know, the various networks that they've had. Where are they? How are they now, per se? Um, what's the the conditions currently of this this peace process? And has there been any upticks in IRA oh, sure. um, operations that undermine? So what happened with the peace process was that when the um Again, the peace process, the Good Friday deal was signed in, the Good Friday Accords were signed in 1998 Mm -hmm. and 2000 um, was really kind of a a big year for that as well. That was when the decommissionings happened, a lot of that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. So the problem is, though, that whenever there are, again, going back to the Civil War, whenever there are groups that are signing on to peace treaties in Ireland, a lot of times what will happen is there will be radical members of those groups that won't want to sign on to the treaty. Mm-hmm. So what you have is you have a distilling of the people, right? Mm-hmm. So in some sense, it's good because at the same time, like you have all of these former IRA men that are now, they have decided, okay, well, we're going to take up the political realm of the fight instead of the military realm mm-hmm. and uh, we're going to get involved in local politics and, and try to you know achieve united ireland through peaceful means mm-hmm. the problem is though even though you're distilling the numbers of the terrorists down um into what they call dissident splinter groups right mm-hmm. like now they have a group called <clears throat> i mean there's probably off the top of off the top of my head I could probably name 10 groups that claim to be the legitimate IRA, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because they've all, like I said, going up from the original IRA, they, they split it off. Then then it became the anti-treaty IRA, and then they renamed themselves into the official IRA, and the provisional IRA split off from them. Mm-hmm. And then once the provisionals retired, retired in the 2000s when they decommissioned, the hardcore group of them called the real IRA didn't want to do that. In the, in the 1980s, you had a group called the Continuity IRA that are still active. They split off. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a joke in, the, in, in places in the UK that, you know, eventually they're going to have a group called the Roth IRA uh, <laughs> because of there's, there's so many of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a little difficult for the police to track. 
um, because right now what you had the real the groups that are active are the real IRA Republican action against drugs mm-hmm. and then because they don't that's that's a whole other kettle of fish um, and there is now this group called the new IRA that has basically become an amalgamation of a bunch of the smaller IRA groups like the real IRA, RAD, Republican Action Against Drugs. They were the one who killed the guy, Alan Ryan, earlier, uh, who I talked about, and a bunch of these other groups. Um, One of the things that is going on is that they understand political warfare very well. So they they will usually prop up a civilian political party Mm -hmm. to engage in psychological operations and political warfare against their enemy on a different battlefield, essentially. So right now there's a group called Saru that is, they were legally, get this, you'll get a kick out of this. So they were, the new IRA was formed. They announced it at the, as they usually do with this type of stuff, they announced these group formations at the funeral of a decorated member. Mm Mm-hmm. So somebody will die or something or some, you know, they'll have some commemoration ceremony at a funeral or at, at the funeral home or at the graveyard. And then some guy will get up in a big balaclava with a, you know, mm-hmm. bad look gray on and, and start talking about how, well, you know, we decided this is the best way to, to affect change in Northern Ireland and to destroy the British state. And he's talking about how all the patriots of Ireland have united under a new banner. And Mm -hmm. so the new IRA forms through something like that. Um, They actually temporarily outlawed call of duty in their areas. Okay. Um, Or no, I'm sorry. It wasn't, it wasn't call of duty. No, they were giving call of duty out for free to try to teach young kids about how to use weapons uh that makes sense there was something um, like that it was it was like i'm not sure if it was called maybe it was grand theft auto but it was one of those types of games where they were trying to um they were trying to teach the kids about like helicopters and how right. to shoot them down i think it would have been uh, call of duty because if i remember correctly there's a particular game uh well one of the the call of duty games where one of the main people is an irishman um and I mean, there's also been a trend here in American uh, military recruits for especially for enlisted soldiers where a lot of them, they play Call of Duty, they play Battlefield, they play Grand Theft Auto, or they go enlist. They, and yeah. <laughs> so it's like, um, if you get shot, you, there's no, there's yeah. no respawn. <laughs> that's, that's it. But, <laughs> no, but continue. But um, anyway, so the new IRA forms itself. Um, they made their bones uh-huh. um, they they usually they they attacked the uh the courthouse in Derry, mm-hmm. which is the second biggest city in ireland mm-hmm. uh or the second biggest city in northern ireland mm-hmm. they murdered a journalist actually a few uh, a few months ago um and they were pretty they were particularly pretty harsh about a lot of that stuff inciting riots all that type and um <clears throat> About four years after they started, Saru launched, and the police service in Northern Ireland was combing through the membership rates, because obviously it's a, if it's a political party, you've got to have headquarters, you've right. got to have all of that type of stuff, and you're mm-hmm. filing on all that, and pretty much everyone that was registering as like a employee of Saru was a known documented member of the new IRA, <laughs> so we know what they're up to. Um, 
so anyway, so Saru, so Saru's causing problems. Um, again, like I said, unfortunately, they just murdered this beautiful journalist over there who did phenomenal work on them. Um, her name was Lyra McKee. Uh, mm-hmm. She was she was a real trailblazer and, and a very brave woman. And she got she was caught in the middle of a riot, and a gunman walked literally walked up to her and shot her. So, you know, they don't and they don't know. And afterwards, there were graffiti showing. You know, informants get talking about how informants will get murdered mm-hmm. like literally right where she was shot they went and graffitied that night the night afterwards they graffitied the entire they tagged up the entire block of streets saying you know ira here to stay mm-hmm. all this other type of stuff so i mean that's the ira side really right now the most dangerous side is the ulster loyalists mm-hmm. um in a lot of ways though as well the the republicans are difficult because they're military they're militant right you know they view themselves as a military gang Mm -hmm. uh or not a military gang they view themselves as a military unit right Mm -hmm. they they refuse to wear sometimes they will refuse to wear clothes in or prison uniforms of any stripe in british prisons in northern ireland or anywhere else because they see themselves as military prisoners as pow's Mm -hmm. um on the loyalist side, even though that particular POW thing also holds to them under aspects of a bunch of peace agreements, um, it's a little different because what happened was, as you saw this uptick in, in Irish Republican activity in the 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. the loyalists thought that their culture was being attacked. And okay. so as a result, what happened was they started basically forming vigilante groups to try to defend themselves, mm-hmm. right? Of former Protestant loyal or of Protestant loyalists and what have you. And so what they did, and they used a lot of the times they used like civil defense associations to try to do that. But a lot of times they were forced to use local street gangs mm-hmm. in places like Belfast and Derry and what have you, or as the loyalists would call it London Derry. That's a whole other kettle of fish. Um, so they tend to be a lot more violent and they are the ones like, for instance, it's fairly rare, fairly rare Mm -hmm. to see IRA groups at war with each other. Mm -hmm. It happens. Um, it's why that guy, Alan Ryan was killed. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, it doesn't, it doesn't not happen. I mean, sometimes guys will step on each other's toes and it's, you know, It'll it'll turn into situations. I mean, when the when the official IRA and the provisional IRA split, guns were literally drawn at the meeting, and the army councilmen were threatening to shoot each other. Um, wow! But it doesn't quite devolve into the like gangland level warfare that the Protestants will go into. Okay, because yeah. that's just kind of not how they work. If any, if it really does get that bad, ultimately the Republicans will either just say, okay. Let's just turn our heads and walk the opposite direction, or we'll get down to the peace agreement and we'll sit, or we'll get down to a peace agreement. We'll have a sit down and try to negotiate. They're they're outwardly concentrated, and sometimes the loyalists can shift and become more inwardly concentrated. And in a lot of ways, when you have a huge drug problem like Northern Ireland has, again, you look at what happened. You know, it's such an interesting situation, especially because of what's going on with all the mental health stuff here after mm-hmm. our lockdowns. Look at 
look at all of the medical issues that happen in Northern Ireland, pretty much all of them have to deal with the Troubles, right? Mm. Which is what they call that period in between the 1960s and 1998 to 2000, mm-hmm. um, or the current dissident Republican campaign mm-hmm. or loyalist campaign. Um, you start to see all of these issues affect, it's going back to your earlier question about PTSD and stuff like that. They all affect the same issue, right. you know, whether it's okay, well, like, you know, people are, you've got little kids or even young adults that are, you know, having one of the worst drug problems. Northern Ireland's got one of the worst drug problems in the Western world. Um, they have some of the highest costs for surgeries and, and things like they're routinely, they're one of the, they're one of the most experienced. The doctors in Northern Ireland are some of the most experienced doctors in the world at like kneecap surgeries and stuff like that because of the fact that it's so common to have you know, okay, guys will shoot your kneecaps out if you're caught screwing around or something mm-hmm. like that. You're caught dealing drugs in the wrong territory. If you're caught dealing, you know, if you're caught by Republican action against drugs or mm-hmm. what have you doing that type of stuff, they'll shoot you in the kneecaps or they'll kill you, mm-hmm. you know, or issues with regards to like explosive devices or anything like that. And when you have like in particular a huge drug problem on top of that sort of violent gangland mentality and to top it all off, You've got no cross-cultural communications going on mm-hmm. between both of those two sides. They try, they've tried for years. Rory McIlroy has done a lot on this. The golfer mm-hmm. uh, has done, he has helped a lot in trying to use public information warfare, essentially, to go after and try to try to calm things down a little bit and try to show kids that there is an option outside of this nationalist loyalist paradigm. Um, it's worthy of note that Rory is a Catholic from a, who grew up in a wealthier Protestant area. He was mm-hmm. one of the few that didn't get burned out. Um, his uncle was killed by Protestant paramilitaries, mm-hmm. <laughs> but he holds Irish and British citizenship and he doesn't want any part in any of this other than to help create peace in Northern Ireland. Um, he is no dog in the fight other than that. And there's a lot of people in Northern Ireland that are starting to see that way. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a group called the Alliance Party, which is kind of a centrist party that is really growing a lot right now in Northern Ireland, especially among the 18 to 34 demographic, because a lot of people are starting to recognize this, you know, that they want an alternative Mm -hmm. to this type of stuff. Um, If you look, they have these things called the gray zones, I believe they're called in in the major cities over there where you're basically kind of culturally shamed into mm-hmm. not asking questions about religion or anything like that. And the reason is because there are places where young guys go and go to the bar or something. And it's kind of like, well, you know, we can leave all of that behind and essentially just kind of relax. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's, it, and so there is a growing cultural pressure to ameliorate yourself, to ameliorate themselves from this situation and to help save Northern Ireland's future. Mm-hmm. Um, because you have so many people like my friends in Oxford, where you literally, they'll, they'll run in and they don't have any problem or any qualms about going out and getting drinks with their Protestant brothers, where their parents would have been caught dead before that happened. Right. Um, that was a, uh, I don't know if that's just a, that's something that they 
there's a lot of inertia going forward, but the people that want to take it back are so brutally violent right. that the police services over there have to be constantly on their guard. And those guys have one of the toughest jobs in the world. Right. Wow. Well, me being from Irish descent, me being a McDowell makes me want to know more about um, the conditions of, of Ireland. This is really, really fascinating. You're just basically a walking history library. Uh, yeah. on, on Ireland so that I can um, thank you uh, with that we are at the 40 minute mark um, so what we're going to do because I definitely want to know more about this now that we kind of had the, the history of it I think that we should do a part two on now the, the modern problem where we're at okay. now um, I'd be with I think well, the, that we yeah essentially just, just to tease it the biggest issue is going to be Brexit uh, oh Okay. Biggest issue is going to be Brexit because the worry is right now, and I don't think that this will come to fruition. I've mm-hmm. actually I talked to I talked to some very special people who are very recognizable in British politics mm-hmm. about this issue, mm-hmm. and I won't announce who publicly until part two. <laughs> and I'll tell you the story about when I when I was talking to this guy and what these people said. Okay. Uh, but there's and, and I'll give my take on it as well, but um, there's a big worry in Northern Ireland right now that a hard border is going to come back, which means that you're going to have more police and military in the country, and that's going to lead to more targeting, which will lead to the violence increasing. Makes sense. I can see that happening. I will hope so, that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, all, we all do. Um. So no, but thank you for your time. Um, I did request to follow you on LinkedIn uh, before we started this um, because I'm going to do your your shout out. You know, this this was amazing. Um, but yes, we will definitely have to schedule for part two, um, where we can definitely get into the nitty gritty of the impacts of Brexit and where we are now. So thank you right. uh, for your time, and we will talk soon. All right. Thank you so much, Maj. Thanks for having me.